Welcome to episode 174 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Hey, listeners. For the podcast this week, let's chat a little bit about business model innovation in unusual places. So what do I mean by that? I had the privilege last week of attending the Business Innovation Factory Conference. Uh, it's a conference I enjoy very much, and I've been there a total of six times. Uh, I feel like uh, in some ways I'm a, uh, a college senior there or, or a post-grad, right, uh, having been there so many times. For listeners who are unfamiliar with the conference, it's a uh, collection of talks held in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, with the focus on uh, business models and, and innovation in uh, a variety of, um, of industries, including health, technology, education, and nonprofit. And it really attracts a group of people who are very interested in collaboration, uh, in sharing new ideas, in pushing change forward. Uh, and it's led by our friend Saul Kaplan, who uh, is the MC of the event and does an excellent job every year. Uh, as I mentioned, last week was the... And not uh, just the MC, I mean, it's Saul's event, right? It's yes. His brainchild. He's, he's, the, he's the big kahuna, as well <laughs> as being the MC. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he has a... Uh, a, uh, I'll call it a consultancy, but the Business Innovation Factory does work uh, in all of these industries and, and provides uh, business model and innovation consulting uh, to uh, groups large and small. Uh, and the conference is just part of their, um, part of their offering uh, that they have annually. Uh, so, so this year was, uh, as usual, was an excellent conference, and, and it opened up with Bill Taylor, who is the uh, founder of Fast Company magazine, uh, you might be familiar with that, uh, and he had a new book uh, that he launched at the conference called Simply Brilliant, which uh, basically took a look at a lot of um, unusual suspects, we'll call it, uh, industries where you wouldn't necessarily be thinking about innovation uh, and showing in the way that these uh, these companies had really built into their business models uh, something different from you know the the uh, the the run of the mill in their in their industry and I think this is so important right now to be thinking about how businesses uh, can improve themselves just because we have this uh, clash or intersection of of technologies and and the sort of stress of trying to figure out how we're all going to move forward in, in the working world. We talked a little bit about that last week when we were talking about the, you know, the Uberization of everything and, and what labor rights uh, mm -hmm. were. Uh, so, so Bill introduced a number of interesting case uh, studies that he examines in his book, uh, Simply, Simply Brilliant. Uh, one of them I, I thought that you would like very much, Dirk, uh, is a company from Ohio called Lincoln Electric. Uh, they make 
uh, welding equipment, uh, cutting and, and welding equipment. They have about $3 billion in sales and about 10,000 employees. Sounds like what you might imagine would be a more traditional, exactly. less progressive company. Right. Um, and, and what's interesting, I think, about Lincoln Electric and, and what Bill pointed out in his talk uh, was that they had this social contract with their employees that I think goes far and above um, uh, what what you'd expect to find in, in a in a com uh, company of that sort. Uh, to start with, uh, in the late fifties, uh, they they put together a no layoff pledge. Hmm. So so what that means is if you come to work for the company and you know provided that you're doing your job and you know there's not some other reason to fire you they they will not lay you off so in in a world where layoffs seem to be the preferred technique for cutting costs mm -hmm. um, this this is a pledge that the company's held you know since since the late 50s i believe how how does that work or are you familiar enough with the case study to know how it works because what jumps to my mind is Global recession, sales are down fifty exactly. percent. Something big has to happen. Yeah, right? and that's exactly what they encountered. You know, uh, huh. in in the uh, in the Great Recession, and and what happens is, uh, I believe, uh, you know, that there there may be additional uh, training for employees to do you know different sorts of jobs and reduced hours, things like that, so the company can make it through. Got it. So but, it's reduced pay as opposed to reduced headcount. Yes, okay. yes, I, I believe that's that's the mechanism that they use. Okay. Uh, a, a second item in their social contract, and I'm sure there's more than than three, but I'm I'm just going to talk about three today. Um, they have a pay for performance um, uh, mechanism for rewarding employees, uh, you know, throughout the year and at the end of the year, uh, which is based on individual productivity. So there's a series of metrics that. Um, uh, employees perform against and if you have a particularly good year you can have you know up to sort of double what your base salary is so it's a very incentive laden uh, way of approaching uh, production and and that works for them they have, they have extremely high quality output and and high productivity uh, perhaps due you know in part to this uh, this this second item. Given the industry they're in, I'm assuming that safety's part of it, right? So if you cut off your finger, even though you're the most productive <laughs> gal in the in the whole shop, that's gonna hurt your bonus because you're not following safety regulations. Yeah, I I don't have insight into the particulars of the metrics, but I would imagine that uh, uh, without that, yeah. it's a different type of dystopia, right? It's, sure. Yeah. Uh, the last, the, the go last... faster, go faster. Sorry, go <laughs> yeah, um, and you know, w w one other one other piece of this is that they have a uh, employee advisory board uh, that helps guide the um, uh, the company, and I, I believe that employees are elected uh, to those positions. So, so there's a seat at the table uh, for the employees as well. So, so those are three sort of unusual um, items, you know, innovative mechanisms that are present in, in kind of a, a, a mainline or, you know, uh, sort of industrial age organization that has allowed them to become, uh, you know, great exporters and really competitive in a global economy, precisely because they're treating employees and, and people like like people, 
You know, yeah. what, what, what a strange thing that that would be that would be considered innovation. But it is. Yeah. It, it's it's counterintuitive. Um, it and, feels more like progressive than innovative. If if you get the distinction I'm making. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It it, it is progressive, but I I think that's part of the. Uh, um, what what I'd highlight as as being unusual, right? Yeah. Because it, it's this marriage of of sort of a progressive viewpoint, but coupled with uh, you know a very competitive um, blue collar type industry. Uh, you don't see that marriage very often, and 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 working, may... working class, John, working class. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, when when I was growing up, the you know me too, was, yeah, me it was too. blue collar, white collar, right? Yeah. Um, once upon a time, colored people was a good thing to say too, right? Oh we, yeah. We we just dated ourselves with all this rubbish, you know. That's right. Um, the terms change over time, and sometimes we inadvertently say something someone might find offensive just because we're a little older, right, John? Yeah. Um, <laughs> thanks for pointing that out. So, so the 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 second company that uh, Bill talked about uh, was Megabus, yeah. which which is uh, essentially a point to point uh, bus transportation company that would compete with, you know, the likes of uh, Greyhound or, or you know, the uh, um, inexpensive buses that go from, say, Boston to New York uh, that you can get in Chinatown. And Megabus is transporting a million people every six weeks. They are, they are um, sort of changing what bus transportation is, and they're doing it by uh, uh, employing entirely digital ticketing, for instance, and creating a, an experience on board the bus that is really a, a connected experience. So Wi-Fi uh, uh, outlets for for everybody, um, big windows, double decker bus, and 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 different kinds of seating. You know, uh, uh, business class seating and things like that. Uh, additionally, they have all sorts of uh, clever, clever ways they get the people on board to uh, fill up the bus. The the first ticket on the bus is a dollar, right? It doesn't it doesn't matter what your destination is, and the price you know changes as you know as more people buy tickets. But by looking at the uh, transportation industry, the bus industry as something, um, as something that. You might be able to draw people out of their out of their cars and into this mass transit, um, rather than as just something that was, um, I, I I don't know, just sort of the old school like, hey, I need to get from point A to point B. By by aiming for people uh, who might be taking cars instead, they really changed the uh, the experience for the for the bus ride. Um, and now there's what's called the megabus effect, which is uh, uh, basically that that they're including so many riders in these in these uh, point to point um, uh, transportation that they're they're actually changing the way uh, that people get you know from place to place. So I thought that that was another great example of an old line industry that was being invigorated by uh, new ways of thinking and, and sort of the digital life grafted on, on top of it. Um, and additionally, there, there are all sorts of uh, environmental uh, benefits to people, you know, taking mass transit as opposed to each of us, you know, sort of 
getting from place to place in our cars. Yeah. Uh, so, so some added added um, uh, bonus there. Yeah, Megabus. That's an interesting example. I happened to ride a Megabus this summer. Um, oh, what did what did you think? Was it a good experience? Was it okay? So, I, you know, I flew to Chicago for Lollapalooza. Uh, my son took a Megabus to Chicago to meet me from Toledo, Ohio, where where he lives, and um, then we took a bus back together to Toledo. Um, you know, it wasn't very comfortable. I mean, to be honest, it was comparable to the buses in Chinatown from my perspective as a rider. Um, it was kind of the same experience. Um, you know, those buses have the reputation of catching on fire, breaking down, you know, being sort of calamitous. And I kind of lump Megabus in with them. Like, to me, it's not like, oh, Megabus is this shining star. And then there's those sketchy guys, you know, um, in, in Chinatown, which uh, those are where the buses originate. But there's also some, you know, sort of um, potentially questionable racist, uh, you know, uh, prejudice uh, identification going on there. But to me, Megabus, just as part of that same group of, you know, they're trying to deliver a very inexpensive transportation option. It's probably, it, it, I know it's not the pinnacle of um, convenience or um, comfort, certainly. Um, and I strongly suspect it's far from the pinnacle of safety. Um, but the odds are still fine, nothing will happen. And, and so it's, it's okay. So, um, you know, from a personal perspective, would I ride Megabus again? Sure. You know, did I come away thinking, wow, Megabus, like this is going to change everything? Absolutely not. Um, but it's the fact that I lump Megabus in with these other faceless services. Like there's not a, um, there's not a premium product there from my perspective. Like the internet service sucked, right? I mean, the, um, the, the power access was okay, but I think you can get that on other buses too. So the challenge I think for Megabus, like sticking with that particular case study is, how do you truly brand differentiate from this other commodity product that you do resemble more than you might like to? Yeah, yeah, that's definitely a challenge. Certainly, we've all heard the stories of the uh, uh, the buses catching on fire uh, from 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 Chinatown. At least in in the Boston New York corridor, that's a a uh, a regular, or it was a uh, a regular occurrence for a while there. But I, I think Megabus does have a national uh, uh, presence and, and marketing and things like that. Uh, certainly, uh, they are a more well represented across the, the country than, you know, the, the single route providers that uh, that we're talking about as well. Uh, I, I think the uh, the next point I, I wanted to get to just sort of based on 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 these examples uh, was the idea that as we move from the uh, um, the industrial age into our you know knowledge economy, there's this rethinking of of the way business can be conducted uh, that I think is really critical uh, for for companies to gain a foothold and and uh, survive and thrive. Uh, in particular. Uh, I was struck by uh, Lincoln Electric's, you know, perhaps old school, but certainly uh, longstanding social contract. Uh, this this idea that the uh, the relationship between the uh, employee and the employer could be could be innovated, could be could be changed, could be uh, designed, right? And 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 for me just sort of based on our discussion last week, given all the concerns about 
labor not having a seat at the table anymore, or at least having a, a lot harder time of it. That example uh, made for me, uh, you know, it made me feel hopeful <laughs> that that there were that there were new ways of doing business that we could that we could pursue. You know, I only have a thimbleful amount of detail about Lincoln Electric, so I'm what I'm saying may be speaking out of turn. But in order to just address the issue for the benefit of our listeners and in a broader way, what I was hearing from from Lincoln's example was the same sort of mistake that progressives have been making for hundreds of years. And I'll specifically mention communism and communism in, in you know, the former Russia becoming the Soviet Union. Um, the, the idea behind communism, the power to the people, I mean, that all sounds great, right? But the problem is when they set it up, they had the people take over and then the people created the same hierarchical power structures that existed before. Just instead of it being a hereditary monarchy, now it was these iron-fisted despots, right? Um, you know, and you can we can argue uh, to what degree Lenin is a despot. We certainly can't argue that Stalin was a major frickin' despot. Um, with Lincoln, you know, what they're doing is they're they're bringing the the, the um, elected group of of labor people is, is sort of how you put it in to join the management in in some capacity, and to me that's falling on the, it's going down that same path of communism, which is namely seeing the world through the top-down hierarchical structure. So we'll elevate the leaders from the workers who will join the owners in, in some degree of management. And how much of that is um, really that, that labor, the labor leaders contributing and how much are they passive observers? I, I don't know. We can't. We can't know. But I would have found it far more progressive if what Lincoln was doing was um, saying, look, you know, uh, whatever the model is, right, you know, every week there's a senior executive meeting and there will be three workers who are randomly selected and everybody's going to get their turn over the years. Or, you know, each month there's a board meeting and three members of the workforce randomly selected, right? So whether or not that's the correct solution or not, I'm not sure. But the, the point being, um, they're, they're going back to the hierarchical top-down model of these are the people in charge who are going to filter information and push it down to the masses below them. It's a very different thing when you're able to have every person come up and be a part of that. I mean, it's one reason why in all of my companies, I've always insisted on a human scale where the owner of the company is tied to the, the basically the lowest person on the totem pole. There's a direct connection where they're working together, know each other's name, see each other on a daily basis. Um, that that creates more humane outcomes. And so I, I would have been much more heartened if Lincoln was saying, look, the CEO is, is going to uh, meet Jane, who is the, the lowest of the low on the hierarchical worker pole. But Jane's voice matters just as much as Bobby, who's this charismatic guy who can get voted to be the leader of, of, of our labor group, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to take anything away from Lincoln. I'm sure what they're doing is progressive. It's better than what many other companies are doing. But when I'm looking for innovation, um, things that would turn my head are more down the kind of path of, of what I was talking about. And um, I'm suspicious that what I, at least what you've shared with me that Lincoln is doing is making similar mistakes to um, what many people have done in terms of uh, you know, bringing up some of the masses to just create a new level of overlord. Yeah, I, I think they have been successful, you know, as as a company for, you know, qu quite a long time. So 
clearly there's there's Stalin was successful for quite a long time too, right? I mean, what, you know, what is that, right? I mean. So, and just a, a, a final uh, shout out to the uh, the BIF conference. Uh, food, f lots of food for thought as usual uh, down in Providence every September. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com. That's just one L in the digital life and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. -T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at dneemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 174 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>